back to There Are Three of Me from Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Corio, and Philippe de Lamatroc. And we've been reading Finding Home by Philippe de Lamatroc. That is the sequel to Alien Us. Alien Us was read in season six, all of season six, all 30 episodes because there were 30 chapters. That story took 10 years to write. This one took six years after that to start and three years to write. So in a way, almost as long. But we are almost done with it. We have read 14 chapters. We got 15, 16, 17, and the epilogue to go. So just three more, epi uh, chap three more episodes and the epilogue, and I'll probably put the epilogue in with chapter 17. So they'll be in the same episode. Okay, let's get started with chapter 15. Star Trek Enterprise, Finding Home, by Philippe de la Matroc, sequel to Alien Us, Chapter 15. Malcolm Reed sat, knee-bouncing, in a lawn chair surrounded closely on three sides by his therapist and his new family. A month ago, he'd found himself calling Elaine Mom and Charles Dad. He used the American terms as they were his American family, and both had smiled when he did. Mom had even hugged him, which only reinforced what Trevon had said. What his father didn't know, and probably never would, was that, painful as it had been, Malcolm counted his worst psychological crisis now a blessing. Because of Trevon's patience in helping him see the truth of his birth parents and the love and acceptance of Tripp's family, he felt he had a rebirth of sorts. His past didn't change, but it had led him here, ready to share a brief history of what happened in Sharu with three people who never asked. His knee bounced because it still wasn't easy, but it was part of his healing, and he trusted Mom, Dad, and Miguel. Less than a year ago, he began, maybe six or seven months, I was sent on a mission with a Mako, Corporal Moody, and Ensign Hoshi Sato, our Chief Communication Officer to retrieve someone who didn't belong on a pre-war planet. We'd intercepted a mysterious subspace transmission. We hit something on the way down, lost power, and crashed on the planet. What we didn't know was that thing we hit caused us to travel back in time as we crashed. We crashed one year before we ever left. That part was easy. It raised some eyebrows, but Though time travel was an important detail in the story, its mechanics was not. Corporal Moody died on impact. Hoshi and I were injured but mobile. We hoped to reach a forest we'd seen on the way down before any natives found us. We weren't so lucky. At that point, Lily jumped into his lap and curled up, forcing him to keep his legs still. She'd gotten pretty good at sensing when he got too tense or stressed. She purred and the vibration grounded him. At first, it wasn't bad. They healed our wounds, did cursory exams. We didn't look like them at all. They were reptilian and looked a bit like our dinosaurs, if dinosaurs were smaller and wore military uniforms and lab coats. The ones that looked more like T-Rexes with long arms were the military. The ones in lab coats were more like pterodactyls that don't fly. They came in two sizes. The big ones were doctors and such, while the smaller ones were orderlies and nurses. They were all male. How did they reproduce without females? Miguel asked. 
Oh, there were females, Malcolm answered, but I never saw or interacted with them. And they only mate once every three years. We crashed at the start of the third year. That will come into play later. He stroked Lily as he spoke. He'd covered the easier parts. He didn't plan on mentioning the collection of semen or every single surgery. They'd be there all night. Now for the hard part. After a month, they grabbed us and drugged us. We lost consciousness for a while. He took a deep breath and swallowed. We woke up during the surgery. I could feel them cutting me, reaching in, the pain. I could hear them talking in very clinical tones. It felt like it went on for hours, and I wanted to die. Hoshi confirmed it happened to her as well. Mom was on his right, and she put a hand on his arm and squeezed. He went on. They took Hoshi away about a month later. I didn't know that, though. They took me to surgery again. I woke up during it. I found out she was gone after. They concentrated on different regions of my body. Every surgery was the same, though, in that I was awake. They'd keep me in a coma for a week after, allow my body to heal the rest of the month, and do it again. Every month? Dad asked, horrified. Malcolm shook his head. They eventually had explored just about everything surgically, so they tried chemicals on my skin, heat, and cold tolerance. But when they opened my head, something else happened. He looked at Travon, who nodded his encouragement. I thought a thought to Hoshi, that I was glad she wasn't there to suffer as I had. And she answered, raised eyebrows again. Travon cleared his throat. Malcolm's telepathy is very different from mine. In some ways, it is more limited, and in others, it's much more expansive. He's limited in recipients. Not everyone can hear him. This Hoshi Sato could, and even on the other side of the planet. With time and practice, they could not only communicate, but share sight and sounds, and even sensation. With me, he can share memories, and it's like I'm there having the same experience. Miguel turned to face him. Did he share one of those surgeries? Trevon blew out of breath. <sighs> Not intentionally, but yes, I have felt that in some of his unguarded moments early on. Talking with Hoshi, Malcolm went on, changed everything. It was still horrid and looked more and more like we were left behind, but we weren't alone. We had each other. We told each other stories during the bad times, and we fell in love there half a world apart. The next part was the hardest, and he felt his heart begin to pound. As we came closer to the end of the year, he paused for another breath. Things changed. They tried harder to make me speak. They were more aggressive in their experiments, and one of the military was always there. They drugged me, but Hoshi could help. She'd tell me what to say. She's a linguist. We told the story of the Lord of the Rings in quite a few different languages. They let the T-Rex, my code name for the military guy, they let him pound on my leg until it broke, and he pushed me into a tub of water. His voice decreased to a whisper. And drowned me. Twice. 
He took a few shaking breaths, and Lily pushed against his chest. Tripp explained later that it was their mating time, so testosterone was high, and they switched ruling species around that, so the military was gaining power over the scientists. I had to have surgery on my leg, my chest, awake. But somewhere during the coma, one of the orderlies, I called him Smeagol, but his name was Beju. He helped me in small ways before this, like he gave me a small amount of water in secret during the heat experiment. Now he had my communicator, and he gave it to me to call for help. Hoshi helped me with a message. Then I was out again. Wait, Dad said, lifting a finger. You went after a message, then crashed a year in the past. Malcolm nodded. Yes, it was my message. But you didn't know, Elaine argued. I didn't, Malcolm agreed. When I woke up again, I was being dragged into a room where T-Rex was interrogating Beju. He killed him and left me in that room with the body. A little while later, an even bigger T-Rex roughed me up some more. And then they dragged me out into the desert, laid me on the side of a hill, held me down, and pounded large stakes through my wrists one at a time. He opened and closed his fist to remind himself that he could. Lily pulled one hand back for more petting, and he obliged. There were cables in my ankles, holding my legs up, pinching the nerves. Two pulled my legs out, and one pulled them together. They left me there in the sun to die. Mom took his other hand and squeezed it in her, too. That night, after I told Hoshi goodbye, Tripp found me. He took me back to Enterprise, and my parents said to take me off life support. Apparently, I came very close to dying, but I didn't. Did they rescue Hoshi? Miguel asked. Malcolm nodded. Yes, she didn't suffer the same as me. They put her to work with their females, farm work, and then they would regularly take her back to the lab to, um, well, to impregnate her with a clone of me. Miguel squinted. Why? It was easier again. Their females are less evolved, not as smart or sophisticated, so they apparently didn't think any females could be equal to males. She had to be like their females. They never even tried to talk to her or make her talk. The country she was in had to settle for the female alien. They wanted a male, so they wanted to clone me. So she was okay, Mom surmised, when they found her, your crew. Well, no, Malcolm told her. We didn't have a life there. No future. We didn't think Enterprise was coming anymore. We were no better than lab rats or zoo animals, a slave. When she knew I was dying, she hatched a plan to join me. She almost succeeded. She nearly froze to death. Fractured hip, arm, jaw. She did heal faster than I, but we did manage to have a date before I had a heart attack. They sent me home for a heart. She had to stay for some secret mission. He sighed. God, he missed her. That must be hard. Mom said, having her in your head all that time and now. Nothing, Malcolm breathed. I guess I can reach the other side of a planet, but not light years through space. She probably feels the same, Miguel said. She had you in her head. Malcolm nodded. 
I think everything might have been easier, even with my parents, if she'd been here. But Mom, you told me stories of Lizzie, and Dad, you talked about the kittens and Trip. Miguel, you shared stories of Albert and Owen. You took me in when I was at my lowest, and you're helping me to heal what I didn't know was broken. Did you experience any flashbacks in the telling? Trebon asked silently. No, Malcolm replied likewise. It hurt, but not as much as I thought it would. Hoshi Sato looked out at the stars streaking by the windows. She was relieved that they were now heading home, but she thought she'd be happier than she felt. She was still 21 days from seeing Malcolm or talking to her parents. Trip had assured her the engines were running perfectly and that they could not go any faster. Flox was patiently waiting for an answer. I feel... I feel... Hoshi started. It should be easy to answer, but she didn't just feel one thing. I feel glad, anxious, worried, impatient. It's perfectly fine to feel many different and even contradictory emotions, Flox said in response, though perhaps it would be healthier to entertain one feeling at a time. Can you allow yourself to be happy for one hour or agree to set aside worry for a time? I don't think I can do happy, she told him. I can distract myself from worrying if I have something to keep me busy. But now that the negotiations are over, but still no external communications, I don't have much work to do. There was always the UT. She envisioned it as a tool for real-time translation for all parties conversing. A human speaking English with a Tellarite would hear English while the Tellarite would hear his own language. They could manage it with some species fairly well, like the Vulcans, but it needed to work for first contacts, too. They were still a long way from that. You're officially on leave, the doctor reminded her. You needn't be working at all. What about hobbies? Like what? She really didn't know. She'd run an illegal poker ring at the academy. Did that count? Flock sounded surprised. What did you do in your spare time before the crash? She spent time with Cutler and Travis. Girl talk with Cutler and a few other female colleagues. With Travis, it was usually watching movies. She didn't need girl talk anymore. She'd found the man she wanted to keep. Sometimes I'd cook. And what did you like to do back on Earth before you joined Enterprise? She had to think. That had been a few years ago. She'd been teaching in Brazil. She went on excursions into the Amazon forest to learn the languages of the tribal people that still chose to live there. She played poker. Her mother had sent her a bonsai tree. None that I could do here in 21 days, except maybe go to hydroponics and help something grow. I had a bonsai tree back there. Ah, those are the miniature trees. Flock smiled, but not to his widest. I do believe Lieutenant Carrillo picked up some saplings from M476234 a few months back. Perhaps you could start a bonsai. You can always take it with you to Earth. Tending a bonsai was a calming experience. Okay, but not every tree is compatible with the process, and it doesn't take up much of a day. What about art? What about it? She repeated. I'm not much of an artist. Perhaps as a therapeutic exercise, then he offered, as patient as ever, to exercise your demons, as they say. 
and you needn't draw, you can use compository software. Find images that most closely represent what you have in your mind. Probably easy enough, she figured. Start with dinosaurs, scale them down, and dress them up. I don't want to think about the orcs, she said instead. I'd like a whole day where they don't even cross my mind. How would putting them in images help me do that? Hoshi, you know that sharing the story helps it become less painful. Sharing it in a different way can do the same. Wasn't that similar to what she told Malcolm, or wished she told Malcolm? Fine, I'll try it. Still a lot of day to fill, and the days feel longer now that we're heading home, but still so far away. He wasn't deterred by her pessimism. Perhaps T'Pol can help you fill another hour with meditation. No. She negated that right away. That's like mindfulness. And I try. I really do. But when my mind has little to think of, it goes back to Sharu or to Malcolm. Hoshi, he said in a tone that carried a bit of exasperated patience. Your anxiety for Malcolm will not change his condition on earth for better or for worse. Phlox reached forward and took her hand. It only hurts you. Your cortisol levels increased sharply since Commander Tucker returned, and they've only decreased slightly since you were relieved of the negotiations to now. You will learn his true condition in three weeks' time. Of course, it didn't change Malcolm's condition, but she just couldn't help it. But when I think of him, and I want to think of him, I end up picturing him pinned in the desert or catatonic in Mississippi. I know he has a therapist and Tripp's family, but I just can't seem to imagine him well and whole. I want to, I really do. I want to daydream about what life together might be like. I just get stuck. The uncertainty makes it worse? Flox asked. Would you like to know what happened in the desert? I can relieve that uncertainty, though it is very unpleasant. She felt the tears well up in her eyes, but she nodded. Can it be worse than what I imagine? Flock squeezed her hands. It might. We know from the scientist's records that he was injured before being taken to the desert. His femur had been previously broken, as had his sternum. He was in a medically induced rehabilitative coma after surgery to repair those injuries when he was revived. It would seem he was violently beaten or roughed up prior to the desert as well. They laid him on the side of a hill, head down. There was a bruise, I believe, came from a foot of a large orc, as you call them. He put his hand to his own chest to demonstrate. His arms were bent to 90 degrees, and large stakes were driven into his wrists, and then into large wooden blocks in the sand. The tears slipped down Hoshi's cheeks. And his legs? Cables, two on the outside pulling his legs apart, one between them pulling them together. Where they crossed, they pinched the nerves. He couldn't rest his legs without causing even more pain. A defibrillator was attached to his chest to keep him alive as long as possible. Hoshi sobbed now. Phlox moved close and pulled her into a hug. Is it better to know? She nodded against his shoulder. I thought it worse. But it's terrible. When they started, I was doing morning feeding. He held on in that heat and sun. I kept telling him stories. It was cold at night when he told me goodbye. Phlox patted her back. Now imagine him waking from surgery and a few days later writing your letters. He could move all his fingers. He could walk a short way. 
He could breathe easily. His heart could beat strongly. He was well and healing. He was whole. And she found she could. He'd written that his new heart loved her. It beat faster when he thought of her. But it was healthy, as were his nerves and even his eye. He said he would someday sweep her off her feet. Malcolm finished feeding Lilibet and Sina, then headed for the shed. Lily had beautiful dark brown points and big blue eyes, and she had become his little shadow. Sina was Travon's chosen kitten, the calico. The older couple he stayed with was allergic, so Malcolm agreed to care for both of them until Travon moved back to San Francisco. As such, Malcolm got the benefit of both of them sleeping with him, which was comforting and helped him get back to sleep after a nightmare. The other three kittens had been adopted out. The mother cat, now spayed, didn't much like people touching her and preferred to stay outside, but the family put food out for her and she stayed close. Mom pretended she wasn't a cat person, but he'd caught her giving the kittens treats when she woke up late at night, although that wasn't as often as before, for her or for Malcolm. They were both feeling much better rested. Miguel only visited every few weeks now to do the obligatory checkups. Malcolm was feeling physically well now. He could walk and even run, in short bursts. The splints had come off, and he now got to work on something more interesting than picking up pegs with a pair of tweezers. Starfleet R&D had supplied him with the parts, and Malcolm had taken up working in the shed. He started with a replica of the force field he'd stabilized before. It was practically easy now, but it was still static in only one plane. He was trying to find a way to bend and shape it. It kept his mind and hands busy, though he wished he could brainstorm with Trip sometimes. He was using an even smaller working replica to try and shape it around a simple cube when Dad yelled out the back door off the kitchen, Malcolm, you have a visitor. For just a moment, he hoped it was Trip, with Hoshi, and that Enterprise had returned, but he knew that was unlikely without some advanced notice. It wasn't Travon. He wasn't due for another hour. Malcolm turned off the little force field and walked back to the house. He was surprised to see Dr. McCormick having coffee at the table. She stood. Hello, Lieutenant. Do you remember me? I do, he replied and offered his hand. You've come a long way. Dad tactfully slipped off to the living room. The doctor smiled. You are technically still my patient. I wanted to see you for myself before signing off on a de declaration of fit for light duty. She took a scanner from her pocket. May I? Absolutely. Malcolm held his wrist out to her, let her scan his chest, take readings of his eye. It only took a few minutes. She snapped the scanner closed. You're still too thin and need to continue training for strength and endurance if you wish to return to tactical service. R&D had expressed an interest in you staying on and joining the team in San Francisco. Malcolm wasn't sure what he wanted, and he didn't have Hoshi's input on the matter. I'm keeping my options open at the moment. If it's fit for light duty, does that mean I need to report somewhere? She shook her head. No, Lieutenant. You're fit for light duty, but still officially on indefinite leave. You're still on the roster with Enterprise, and Enterprise is at an undisclosed location. She sat again, holding out an arm to indicate he should sit as well. When I last saw you, I was very concerned for your mental health. Dr. Travon has given me regular reports, not of private thoughts or feelings, but of your overall health. I was very glad to watch your progress. I'm sure you still have reasons to keep working with your therapist, but all told, you seem to be in a much better place. 
literally and figuratively, he thought. I do feel much better. I would like to ask you something, if I may. Certainly, she replied. Can you tell me about your interactions with my sister? The doctor was one of the last people to see and talk to Madeline. She nodded. Madeline was determined. She came with a declaration by her doctor that she was of sound mind when she made the decision. She fought for it. We took some samples to test her compatibility, and she proved to be highly compatible. The day before surgery, she returned. She wanted to see you. She started to cry, and I helped her to imagine what you'd be like now, all healed up. She had a spell that night, in the hospital, a bad one. We put another bed in your room, and she slept there after the spell had passed. In the morning, she and her nurse took a flight around the city to see some of the iconic architecture of San Francisco. Then she came back. We prepped her for surgery. I explained the procedure and put the controller in her hands. It would push her into a spell and brain death. She wanted to say something first. She said, Malcolm first, anything I have that he needs, then the others. My brain goes to research. Maybe they'll find a way to treat these damn tumors. Don't tell my parents what I've done. Darlene will inform them. Then she pushed the lever. Darlene. He hadn't heard that name before. She nodded. Her nurse and companion scrubbed in and stayed with her right to the end. Malcolm wanted to find this Darlene. Do you happen to know Darlene's surname? Not offhand, McCormick replied, but she scrubbed in, so she'll be on the surgical report. I can get that for you. Thank you, Malcolm offered. My sister left me her flat in London. Maybe I can look this Darlene up. I have her journal as well. She said she was happy that her death would mean something if she could help me. He felt his throat tighten. I wish we'd stayed in better touch. McCormick reached out and covered his hands with hers. I could tell she loved you very much, and I think she'd be glad to see you as you are now. She finished her coffee. I should be getting back. I have a hospital to run. It was good to see you, Lieutenant. Stay well, whatever you decide. He walked her to the door. Hoshi woke up and marked the day on the pad with Malcolm's letters. Fifteen more days to earth. She sighed deeply, but got up and took a shower. She put on her civvies after and tied her hair in a ponytail. She'd promised to meet up with Travis for breakfast, so she walked to the turbolift and told herself it had been ten days already. Time was actually passing. It didn't feel like it. She felt like she was in some kind of limbo, stuck in the same day over and over again, though she rationally knew that wasn't possible, and she'd had breakfast with Cutler, Flocks, and Trip in the past week, too. She still worried about Malcolm and what his father's outburst had done to him, but the rational idea that he's had time and therapy to heal in Tripp's family's home had started to sink in as well. He was likely better off than when Tripp returned. Would she hear him as they got closer to Earth? He had reached her in Buftanus. They didn't know his maximum range. Would he know they were coming to even try? They couldn't contact Starfleet Command until they entered the solar system and not their families until two hours after the ambassador disembarked. Surely she'd be able to hear him from orbit, wouldn't she? Would he be ready to hear from her, or would she have to wait for him to initiate? How could he know to do that if she couldn't contact him for over two hours? She was still running scenarios when she got in line for food. Pancakes. She put two on her plate, then spread some peanut butter on both before pouring on her syrup. Travis smiled as he shook his head. He converted you, didn't he? 
Hoshi smiled, too, remembering the earlier part of their date. Have you even tried it? Can't say I have, he replied. My aunt, though, used to swear that peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches were good. I never wanted to try that, either. Hoshi cut off a bit and put it in her mouth. She found it sticky, as before, but just as tasty. She wanted to wash it down, but realized she'd forgotten a drink. I forgot my milk. She started to get up, but Travis waved her back. I'll get it. Go ahead and eat. He was back quickly, and she took a sip to wet her mouth a little. Are we going as fast as we can? she asked. Solid warp five, he answered. Trip says the engines are purring, so we'll get there on time. What do you have planned for the day? Hoshi blew out a breath. It was pretty much the same as yesterday. I started a bonsai with one of the saplings Lieutenant Carrillo brought back. Flox wants me to do some composite drawings. Otherwise, I'll probably work out, meet with Flox, and maybe work on the UT some. Carstairs has been going a little stir-crazy on the bridge, Travis told her. Not much for a communications officer to do when we're running radio silent, he smirked. Not much for a helmsman to do either, really. Keep it pointed home and fast. Straight lines are kind of boring. I would have thought I would enjoy a little boredom, Hoshi admitted, after working hard in the fields and shoveling snow. But it just makes the days seem longer, even when I can't get my thoughts to slow down. Travis leaned across the table. Didn't I hear you used to run a poker ring at the academy? Hoshi nodded. And I got kicked out of the academy. For a poker ring? he asked, sitting back. She shook her head and smiled. For breaking the arm of the guy trying to break it up. Travis chuckled. Ouch! Glad they let you back in. Anyway, maybe we could get a couple others and have a friendly game. Renfield has a deck. He likes playing solitaire. Hoshi found she liked the idea. Anyone have chips? Not that I know, Travis replied, but I'm sure Trip will have some nuts and bolts we can use instead. Want me to ask? Poker could kill a couple more hours. I have to meet with Phlox at 1700. How about 1830? Malcolm watched the weather report along with Mom and Dad. Hurricane Griselda was projected to head into the Gulf and onto the mainland. They were far enough inland to not have to worry about the full force of a hurricane, but even as a tropical storm, it could be rough. Malcolm wasn't too worried. Dad had assured him that he'd been through several actual hurricanes back in Florida. Houses these days were built to withstand much worse. Flooding was the only thing they needed to bother with. Houses and buildings could still be sealed up tight, but water could still saturate the ground and come up that way. It could trap people until boats or flitters could get them out or drop supplies. They were 17 kilometers from the nearest river, so that wasn't an issue Malcolm concerned himself with. He managed to get the force field to curve around a cylinder by having the emitter project outward and down, like an umbrella. Where it met another projection, it flattened and joined. The report said Griselda would make landfall in eight days. He had that long, then, to get his force field to cover the house. There we go. There's chapter 15, finally. And I say that because halfway through it, my phone decided to die, even though it was sitting on top of an anchor wireless charger. At 17% when I put it on there, and it worked through the first two uh, scenes, which were, I did, I recorded those in two separate parts because they were quite long. And then I was working on scenes three. I, I had read scene three, and I was reading scene four 
when my phone suddenly said shutting down and I'm like, what? Why? So I've got it on a regular USB-C charger at the moment and it's now at 12%. It's clawed its, crawled its way back up to there. Um, I don't know if I trust the anchor right, right now. Um, and if you heard kind of a fluttering in the background in the first half of the chapter in, in my intro, I think that came from the anchor. That's when the phone was on the anchor. I only heard it when I was editing. So maybe there's something wrong with that anchor charger. <sighs> That's annoying. But anyway, Malcolm is definitely in a better place. The kittens have names. And it appears that Malcolm has decided to keep one. He's named her Lilibet. And um, Trevon has chosen Cena, the calico. The other three were adopted out. These kittens were inspired by a litter of cat kittens that we fostered with their mama cat. And we had them from a week old. Two of them were mostly white with shadows on their ears and tails. And I knew that meant it could be Siamese. Um, you know, they're not necessarily Siamese, but they have the points. They have the, the blue eyes. Um, and then there were two black and whites and a black. Well, in this case, I threw a calico in, but we did have a calico in another foster litter. And um, her name was... It was not Harriet. It was Harriet, Fritz, and Liesel. It was Liesel. And she was a beautiful calico. But technically, in that litter of five kittens, there was a calico. But he was a boy. He was one of the white ones. And it's fun. It's like watching a Polaroid, you know, dry and develop in front of your eyes. It's like watching these kittens grow and their colors come in. <laughs> I mean, the black and whites looked like black and white right at the start. So did the black, but the the white one with the shadows on her ears, she started turning into those Siamese colors and they, they got so dark. Um, when a Siamese or Siamese colored cat ages, they get darker because the darker parts of their pigments, their, their fur, are where they are coldest. So the tail, the, the paws, the nose, the ears. Um, I had one who was half Siamese and half um, tabby. And he was kind of cream colored as a baby. And you took a picture of him. They, we didn't have digital cameras then. It was a 35 millimeter or a 110. And he would just blanch out the camera. He was a white blob with eyes. <laughs> so that's how light colored he was. And he was cream colored with tan colored points and blue eyes. And But he didn't have the build of a Siamese. He had the build of a, of a tabby. And um, his points had stripes too. And the lady I got him from kept saying, no, his mama was a tiger stripe. So I know the half was tabby. But there had to be some of that other in there somewhere. So anyway, as he aged, he, he almost made it to 15. His back got darker and darker and darker. This little kitten, her name was Frigga, 
there were the kittens of Asgard. We were, you know, there'd been Marvel movies out. And so we um, named them after people from Asgard. So the black one was Thor. The black and white girls were Valkyrie and Lady Sif. And then there was Frigga and Loki. And Frigga developed those dark points, like chocolate points. But even at eight weeks old, she was darker on her back than, than my half Siamese cat ever got. So she's going to get so dark when she gets old. Um, but she, she was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And the other one, the little boy, he developed incredibly. Some parts of his ears were white, some parts were dark. He had dark gray, almost black spots. He had brown spots. He had big patches of kind of uh, beige tabby and white under, you know, white base. So he had multiple colors and that's supposed to be near impossible for a male. They just can't do that. Only the um, X gene can, or yeah, only the X gene can do it. Uh, so the Y gene messes that up. So he has to have XXY most likely to have all these colors. And where he was darkest, where those dark points did come in, were where points would be. But, you know, some of his points were white because the white was there. But when there were those points, it'd be, where, it'd be in those spots, like around his eyes and around his mouth and then on, on his tail. Um, he was just incredibly... <laughs> I'd, I'd always wondered if I'd ever see one of those boys. There's only like 3,000 in the entire world. It is so rare. I thought I'd maybe get lucky to see one. I got to foster one. Um, he got adopted real quick. So did so did uh, Frigga. She got adopted her first day at the shelter when after they were fixed. They go to the shelter on Saturdays and people come in and look for kitties. And one, she ended up in his arms, this guy, and she wouldn't. And he carried around for you know an hour, and he he of course adopted her. Loki was adopted by a woman who had a traumatic brain injury. Unfortunately, she found she couldn't take care of him because, you know, with that injury. So he came back to the shelter, but he was, again, adopted really quick right out. When, when you get a specially colored cat, <laughs> kitten, or a long-haired kitten, they go fast. Um, you might be worried about little Thor. Uh, he did take a while to get adopted, but he did. And But the thing is, okay, black kittens in general, black cats, are take longer to be adopted from shelters. But we've had black kittens throughout the years that we've been fostering. We fostered started fostering in 2009. And they got adopted quick. We had a litter of five boys named after some of the hobbits, no, some of the dwarves in The Hobbit. And because we had two sets of lookalikes, one was darker, one was lighter, but they had the same coloring. And then there was the black one. And so the black one was Thor and Oakenshield. And then we had Owen Glowen and Feely and Killy. We had brothers, right? So 
they didn't get adopted by their colors. They got adopted mixed. Uh, Keeley was the last one to get adopted, but Thor was one of the first. They got He got adopted with one of the others, and then the other two got adopted, and Keeley was the last. And we would actually going, we actually went to the movie to see the, the last movie of The Hobbit. And as we were coming back after the movie to pick him up, we got the call that he was adopted. So that was kind of cool. Fostering, if you've, uh, you know, think about it, it is really a joy. It is. Some people worry that they'll not be able to let go of the kittens when it's time for them to be adopted. I learned from my first kitten. I didn't get to say goodbye to him, and it broke my heart. He got adopted, and I didn't get to say goodbye. He, I wasn't there, and um, it just broke my heart. And I realized I have to set my heart right. So if you're going to foster, you have to set your heart to love them for a while. Knowing they're not going to stay with you. They're going to go to their forever homes. But in the meantime, you get kittenness. The kittens get socialized. And this opens up more room at the shelter for the older cats. It's a win, win, win. And I'm sure it works the same way for puppies. <laughs> but... Um, I'm a cat person, so I know cats. The most cats we've ever had in our home were was 10. And that might mean that we had three and we had a mama with six babies. Or it might mean we had four and we had a mama with five babies. See? So um, it just kind of kind of depends on the, the configurations. Um, we have kept some of the fosters, but I don't consider them foster fails because at the time we only had three. I do say the only good thing about losing a cat is getting a kitten. And so if we lost a cat, I'd be open to getting another kitten. Um, the, our city allows you to have four. So four is the number I will have. <laughs> it keeps me from being a crazy cat lady. And then fostering is my way of getting around that because they're not my cats. <laughs> but um, Poodle, my oldest came from my sister's ceiling at five weeks old. So he was not a foster fail. And then Vinny was Woody as a foster kitty. He was not my foster though. He was someone else's at the shelter. And um, as soon as he was ready, I was like, he's long haired, I want him. <laughs> so I got him and I changed his name to Brzuskvinia, which means peach in Polish, which peaches are fuzzy and he was fuzzy. Um, Vinny for short. And then we had three, we lost two cats in 2017. So we got Vinny and then we got Eenie. Eenie was one of the six babies when we had a mama and six babies. And he was the only one that looked long haired. So I was just like, he's our next, <laughs> he's our next kitty. We just got to keep him. And um, we did officially adopt him from the shelter, but you get a, get a discount for having fostered. So, and then the last one came after my cat, Smyrslina Raphael, died. Uh, she's the miracle kitty that was um, severely anemic at seven weeks and had 4% red blood cells, but managed to live. And then um, was super healthy until 16 and a half. 
when the vet opened her mouth and saw what looked like squamous cell carcinoma in her throat. That was in April of 2020, and she lasted to October. And that Christmas, actually, over, over Christmas, over the winter, we fostered a group of three kittens. They came as spicy. They were slightly, uh, slightly feral. They were hissy, hissy, hissy. They were around five weeks old, and they were named after some of the children of the, you know, so it wasn't Liesl. The other girl wasn't Liesl with, with, uh, with Harriet and Fritz. I can't remember who it was, but it was not the Sound of Music, the Liesl. That was one of my guy's um, sister. That was We had three. We had Friedrich, Liesl, and Rolf. And they were all bay, uh, blonde tabbies, so they're called buff. They're not quite orange. You say it's buff. They were all buff tabbies, but they were in different levels of long-hairedness or short-hairedness. So Friedrich was short-haired, Liesel was medium, you know, just a little bit more fuzz, and then uh, Rolf was all fuzzy, <laughs> so all long-haired, and I do have a thing for long hair, so we kept him. Uh, my family has a tradition of unusual cat names, so we have strange cat names, but um, two of them, Enie and Rolf, were their foster names, and we decided to keep them because they were unusual enough. Eni, if you must know, uh, was one of six kittens, but two of them already had names, but four of them didn't. And my daughter, who we had living with us at the time, so she was still young enough to be here, um, she said, can we name them Eni, Meeny, Miney, and Mo?" And I'm like, yes, yes, we can. So Meeny and Miney were the two girls, and Mo was one of the black ones, and Eni was our orange and white. And the funny thing is, we had two orange tabbies and an orange and white tabby. We had two black kittens and a black and white kitten, but only one of them was long-haired, and that was the orange and white, and that's who we kept. So that's why we have a cat named Eenie and what it, <laughs> what it is. And then Rolf, of course, was one of the children of The Sound of Music. If it had been Ralph, that'd be too common, but Rolf here in America, that's not very common. So anyway, there we have the thing about the cats and the inspiration for Lilibet and Cena. Lilibet, I actually named after, kind of as an homage to Queen Elizabeth. I think she had recently passed of a ripe old age, the longest um, reign in England for of any of any a monarch. Um, she was. Maybe not perfect, but she was probably the last best monarch they had. Um, uh, and, you know, it was just kind of out of respect that, and, and Malcolm being British, that he named, he, I had her her named Lilibet. Cena, I don't know, it just kind of, you know, something I had to come up with. Probably Beta Zedian. <laughs> so, I mean, what am I going to do? I don't have an example of their language um, or to have any way to translate. So, um, but anyway, that's uh, where they are. And, you know, Tervon is staying with this older family and this older couple who needs some therapy in, re in, in return. And he's, they're allergic, so he can't bring Cena home with him now. But when it goes, you know, so Malcolm is taking care of her until 
Trevon is ready to go back to San Francisco and can bring the cat with him. Um, what is Malcolm going to do with Lilibet? He hasn't decided yet, but he seems to have decided on the cat. So we shall see. Um, Hoshi is happy-ish. No, she can't do happy. Happy and glad-ish to be heading home, but it's too slow for her liking. She wants the ship to go faster, but of course, Warp 5 is as fast as Enterprise goes in uh, the NX-01. Um, So she's trying to hold it together, and the days seem like they're the same day over and over again, but, you know, her rational mind can point out, well, it can't be the same because I had breakfast with different people. Um... And then Travis gives her a uh, an idea to pass more time, and that's to open up some uh, open up another poker ring, <laughs> but a friendly one this time. No money is changing hands because uh, they don't have chips or anything like that. So they're going to ask uh, Trip for some some tool parts, you know, like nuts and bolts <laughs> to be the chips, and they're going to ha- get some people together to play poker. So that's how she's going to pass some of the time. She is still meeting with Phlox, and we actually got to see Phlox in action in this chapter. And he's suggested uh, a couple things for her to try to fill the time, but also, and to help with her therapy, like doing the compository drawings. Um, Art therapy is a thing, but she doesn't have to draw in this day and age. She could just cobble together images until she gets something. Um... And then making a bonsai tree, that takes a lot of patience. Um, so she's working on working on that. And then he arguably does something that might make things worse, but it actually worked out better. Because she didn't have the details on what happened to Malcolm at the end, she was just imagining all kinds of terrible things. And so he told her exactly what Malcolm's injuries were, what happened to the, him there at the end of the, his time on Jiren. And it helped her to, you know, it, it made it concrete. And then, you know, he pointed out that after the surgery, he, you know, could use his hands. He could breathe easy. His heart was strong. And he could walk just a little and that he could write those letters that she has. So that allowed her to imagine him whole where she hadn't been able to do that before. So that's it. And Malcolm is working in the shed to use his uh, hands and his and his mind trying to wrap uh, the force field around a cylinder or a cube and... He's making some progress as this hurricane is coming to shore. Now, they're they're not on the coast. They're well inland. And by the time the hurricane reaches them, it probably will be downgraded. So he doesn't have to defend against uh, the full force of a hurricane. But he wants to wrap the house so it can survive it intact but there is another reason for it and we will see that in the coming chapters i um 
hope my technology will cooperate better in the future. You have to try that anchor charger again. See what's going on. Uh, the, the one in the other room, in what I call the kitten office, it's the work from home office that's in the same room we foster in. Um, so it's the kitten room. It's the kitten office. Um, I've been using that one and it seems to be fine. It's also anchor. But the one in here had been in a box from my desk at my um, last desk job, which I lost in April, April-ish? No. Yeah, maybe April. Um, I think I lose track, but my last IT job, I had it connected to my laptop and I would charge my phone that way. Um, all my stuff was packed up in a box and brought um, for me to bring home on the day they, they um, fired me. And it just kind of sat in a box in our living room in that box. And I realized, you know, why don't I just go ahead and use that here at home? And so I brought it here to this office, which is just the office. But it's also where we can play PS4 or Wii. And we have a PS5, so I'm not sure why we're still holding on to the PS4. But um, <laughs> um, So it's also the game room. But it, my husband has a desk behind me. It's, an, it's a 9 by 9 room. It's a very small room. And um, if we both scoot our chairs back, we'll run into each other. <laughs> um, so the door, the wall opposite the door is where the TV is with the game systems. And then um, if you're standing in the door, my desk, this huge desk with a hutch that we found at the ReStore, which is a, um, it's a, for the benefit of Habitat for Humanity, but it's where you can buy, you know, furniture and things secondhand. Um, might be you could buy a door you can buy doorknobs and and outlets and all this different stuff you know counters and things that you know people have pulled out of like when they're remodeling or something the old pieces will go to restore anyway found this desk there and we bought it and it will probably stay in this house when we move out because it is humongous <laughs> it's humongous and very heavy um so Mine is on the left, and my husband's smaller desk is on the right, where there's a bookshelf bookshelf on that right side, too. And then there's, on the left, behind, when you open the door, it's behind the door, is a very small closet. And since this is no, not a bedroom anymore, we made that a pantry. So it holds the pots and pans and things like that on a shelf in there. Um, it's a very, very small room, but we make it work. We live in a, a small house, a house without a dining room, which is kind of sad. <laughs> I want a dining room. I want a square kitchen and not the glorified hallway that we have for a kitchen. But uh, it's affordable. We have been, I've been, I bought it here and I bought it in 03 and then we got married in 06 and my husband moved in. And it is, we've even had a tree fall on it. And it didn't break the house. It was built in 1929. So it may not be perfect, but it has good bones. Um, they used to make houses stronger than they used, than they make them lately. And so this house is almost to its century point. 
and it still holds up when a tree falls on it. It looked like it was going to break the house. It was covering half the roof. The gutters were bent down. But when they came out and cut the tree down and, and took it away, the gutters popped back and there was just a little area of the roof that needed to be fixed. <laughs> that was it. Uh, good bones. Um, chapter 16 will be tomorrow. And then chapter 17 with the epilogue. And this story will be done. And then I will once again not have anything particular to to read into this podcast. And maybe not anything in particular I can think of to discuss about writing um, that could hold its own episode. So we may go into hiatus again um, afterwards so that we can, you know, have something new when we come back. It took a while after we finished season nine uh, before I finished this story. But as soon as I finished it, I started season 10. So it's a very fresh story. I'm finding a lot of typos and edits along the way. Um, not big changes of anything. Like uh, I will fix any typos I find, but also there was two people, two people speaking in one paragraph. You can't do that. So I had to fix that paragraph, um, make a new paragraph for the second person. It was Dr. McCormick and, and Malcolm. Um, so as I read out loud, I find all of these things and then I edit them in my text editor. And I found a new feature of my text editor, which was very handy. Um, it's been there all along. It's a very old text editor. I've had this program called Super Note Tab for years. It is so simple. When you download it, well, when I download it, it's just an EXE. And you just run it. Uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of baggage. It's just there. But it's called Super Note Tab Notepad. Only recently, Microsoft gave it tabs. Note Tab has had tabs for years. So having tabs lets me open multiple documents. And the other thing about Super Note Tab that was better than Notepad was that Notepad is limited. So... It's hard to put 10,000 words in it. Notepad, uh, Super Note Tab doesn't have that problem. I don't think you can download exactly Super Note Tab anymore, but I kept it on a server and then moved it from computer to computer to computer as I changed. So I've had it for decades. I think there's a newer version out there that you may have to pay for. At the time, Super Note Tab was free. And it still does everything I, I want. So the, the feature I found was when I'm in find and replace or find is a little checkbox for all documents. So say I had chapter 15 up and I have the text version that I originally typed up. And then I have the HTML version that will go on fanfiction.net and archive of our own. And then I have the HTML version that is on my site. So I have three documents for chapter 15. 
And then I find that I have to fix um, one, one place that said writs instead of wrists. So I would need to use find and replace, and I would find writs, and I would replace it with wrists. But what I would do before was I would find it in the text, and then I would click the next document, find it and fix it, click the next document, find it and fix it. And now that I found this, I just make sure that's checked, and then I find it in one document, and then just click replace, replace, and it does it in the other documents that have that er that word writs. Uh, that it, it's great. It's just so much faster. I don't have to go uh, to document find next fix replace document find next replace document find next replace. I just have to go find next replace replace replace, <laughs> and it's done. I don't know why I hadn't seen that all these years, but it does make it so much faster. So that is a cool, well, that's one place that technology is definitely working for me. I do hope that you are enjoying this story and I hope that you will stick around and come back for chapter 16 tomorrow. If there's anything you'd like to write me for, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at inhildi at gmail.com that's i-n-h-e-i-l-d-i at gmail.com and you can toot me on mastodon at inhildi i-n-h-e-i-l-d-i and i would love to hear from you i'll see you tomorrow <laughs>